0: Welcome to On D.O.D. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you're with us this week. The Trump administration is just out with its comprehensive plan to reorganize the federal government. It was based in large part on the reform plans that federal agencies themselves submitted to the Office of Management and Budget last fall. As we've reported, that final plan took a fairly hands-off approach to the Defense Department, but we do know that D.O.D.'s reform plan called for some significant changes in how it manages its own workforce, especially on the civilian side. Those changes were reiterated and laid out in some detail last month in another document, the National Defense Business Operations Plan. The department said that while it might be appropriate for some agencies to reduce their civilian workforces, that's not the case with the military services and agencies. In fact, officials say they actually need to implement at least some targeted workforce growth as part of a bigger effort to manage military members, contractors, and civilians as a total force. On week's show we're joined by one of the leaders of that broader effort thomas hessel is the defense department's deputy director for total force manpower and resources he talked with me about some of the workforce elements of the new business operations plan let's start off at a really high level Uh, and and to do that i want to zero in on a specific phrase the department uses in the business operations plan you you guys call what you're doing a significant shift in, in how you approach workforce shaping and workforce sizing so, so again, to start us off at a high level, draw that characterization out a little more for me and just at a philosophical level what 's changing and, and, and why is it so significant?
1: The most significant change that the, uh, that we are attempting to do here with uh, approaching workforce rationalization is empowering managers to utilize the full breadth of flexibilities and authorities at their disposal consistent with you know all existing laws and statutes. Uh, policies and procedures, and workforce shaping tools to manage their workforce at the local level, uh, consistent with their mission, uh, the work necessary to attain uh, successfully attain that mission, and uh, the resources that are being made avail- available to them through the uh, programming and budgeting process, rather than suggesting that we size uh, our workforce to uh, predetermined levels or with limitations on, on, on force levels. So really looking at what is the mission? What is the mission that is being asked of me, a, a commander, to successfully contribute to the national security strategy and national defense strategy? And what is the most effective and efficient way that promotes readiness and capability to achieving that mission?
0: And another one of the specific contrasts that, that's called out in, in in the plan is that you no longer want to manage your civilian workforce to arbitrary caps. Say a little bit more about which caps you're talking about. Are those enterprise level caps? Are those down at the organizational unit level? And what what's different in that area?
1: So the interesting thing about that is that we're not actually doing anything from a uh, legislative or legal perspective that is different we're actually adhering uh, to laws that congress has enacted annually for well over thirty years that dictate that we manage our workforce to Uh, workload, mission, and available resources. Uh, What we're trying to do here is to move away from uh, some of the notions that managers have in the past utilized as management tools such as hiring freezes or um, limitations on replacements for attrition uh, and, and, and limiting the number of hires. Including contracts uh, based not on uh, overall mission and overall funding but on le- preset levels in those areas so we're simply again empowering decision makers to utilize the resources that are available to them through the programming budgeting process and to make the most efficient and effective choices uh, without uh, notion that there's a hiring freeze today rather than there's a resource constraint or we need to reduce our mission because there's not available funding but instead just shaping the workforce against the mission and the workload.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you're alluding to, Title X does explicitly tell the department that, that you're supposed to go find the most efficient mix of, of military and civilian and, and contractor personnel. At the same time, though, Congress has in recent years been giving specific mandates at the headquarters level, at least, to either reduce total headcount or reduce total spending. So are those two things in conflict at all, or or do those more recent mandates at least complicate your job at all?
1: actually, no, we see see workforce rationalization as an effective tool available to decision makers to achieve the congressional mandates with respect to headquarters spending. Uh, The most recent uh, mandates uh, that have been legislated with respect to headquarters talk about the available resources and reducing the spend and the the, uh, expenditures at the headquarters level while reprioritizing resources to recapitalization, modernization, and readiness recovery needs. Workforce rationalization and and the tenants that are outlined in the National Business Operations Plan really really complement and support that strategy because, again, it allows the decision makers at the headquarters levels and elsewhere to make the most effective use of their resources and not have unintended uh, costs based on a predisposition to a a type of labor source. And so we're looking at uh, either increasing uh, civilian footprint if necessary, because it's more cost effective than leveraging contract support. And at the same time, the National Business Operations Plan and the Workforce Rationalization Plan recognizes that there is a uh, significant opportunities for continued reform and leveraging private sector capabilities so we'll be pursuing, you know, looking to opportunities to how we can better leverage the private sector to be more efficient and effective in how we meet our missions, both at the headquarters and below.
0: So talk a little bit more about the specific ways you're going to go about figuring out what the right mix is. And, and maybe I shouldn't say you, because it sounds like a, a lot of this is going to be decentralized and, and more of a situation where local folks are going to be empowered to make those decisions and find the best mix for them. But, but, but what are, what's the guidance as to how exactly to go about doing that?
1: Absolutely. So you're, you are absolutely correct that we are seeking a more decentralized approach that empowers decision makers to make those decisions at those local levels, given the circumstances and the unique uh, missions that they are given. Um, you said, how do we achieve the, the right mix? And, and we, will, we would say that there is no single right mix. There is no predetermined or uh, predisposed outcome or mix because uh, the number of factors contribute uh, to how we determine the correct mix of active active and reserve military personnel, uh, civilian personnel, and contract support, uh, including the nature of the mission, uh, where the mission is being performed, the local labor market, uh, costs associated with the mission, and the risks associated with uh, different types of performances. So the intent here is to uh, empower and, and provide a Full toolbox, if you will, of uh, and a full suite of uh, flexibilities to managers to include both the ability to uh, convert uh, to in-source work from contract support to civilians if that's determined to be more appropriate or cost-effective. At the same time, we need to seek to leverage the private, the unique capabilities and effective uh, performance of the private sector um, where we can, and part of that would be to. Uh, have the ability, once again, to perhaps conduct public-private competitions or have a more uh, business-informed process by which we can increase le- uh, increasingly leverage the private sector uh, for commercial functions that are better performed uh, or more cost-effectively performed by the private sector rather than the civil- government civilians, as well as looking at our military and civilian mix, uh, identifying where uh, we are using uniform personnel, uh, where there is not a demonstrated military essentiality uh, there's no need uh, for a uniform person. That work could be performed either by a private, uh, by a DoD civilian, or a private sector entity on behalf of the department, and also challenging kind of more traditional. Um, constructs of how we uh, develop officer enlisted mix. Uh, we have a much more highly competent and educated uh, enlisted force than we have ever had in the department and uh, they are more technically proficient and are capable of doing much more uh, than how we've traditionally relied on it. So this emerging domains of war fighting, cyber, uh, remotely piloted aircraft, and, and the increased operas- operas- operationalization of uh, many missions allows for us to make more well-reasoned decisions on how we size and structure our overall force mix to include military, civilians, and contractors working side by
0: side. And just to stick with the, the military part of the equation for a second, the, the document makes clear that, that you think that as of now there's at least some significant universe of people who are in in, in uniform but who, who are not doing military essential functions. Do you have any sense of how big that universe is? And, and the reason I ask is, reading between the lines, it seems like part of the thinking here is that if you can move those military personnel to more military essential functions, it's a way of increasing your effective military end strength without actually adding military billets.
1: Absolutely, that that is absolutely spot on. Uh, we've uh, the department. Um, have, there's been numerous studies, uh, both internal and external to the department, uh, the Defense Business Board, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, and many others have have assessed that. Um, we have numerous military personnel uh, performing what are considered commercial functions. In many many cases uh, it is absolutely appropriate for those military personnel to perform those functions because those are necessary to support career progression, uh, rotational basis, um, allow for uh, downtime for our military members as they uh, rotate in and out of theater but at the same time there is a number of uh, functions uh, that irregardless of those rotational requirements and career progression requirements Uh, can be more cost effectively and would be more appropriately performed either through uh, government civilian performance or through uh, increased contract support uh, performance and that would as you said effectively increase the available or uh, distributable inventory of existing end strength uh, to help uh, close readiness gaps uh, unit manning put more more uh, soldiers sailors airmen and marine into training rotations or into uh, into jobs and functions while they rotate around that are more directly contributing to the, to their overall force readiness levels.
0: That's Thomas Hessel, DOD's Deputy Director for Total Force Manpower and Resources. We'll continue our conversation after a short break on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. I'm Jared Servid. back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Talking this week with Thomas Hessel. He's the Defense Department's Deputy Director for Total Force Manpower and Resources. We've been talking about what the Pentagon calls a significant shift in how it manages the total force, including an elimination of arbitrary caps on civilian hiring. Just before the break, we were talking about another element of the workforce strategy, trying to move at least some military members out of jobs where they're doing purely commercial work, having those functions performed by either civilians or contractors, so that military members can focus on tasks that are essential military functions. Some of this is, is a little bit fuzzy, though, right? And, and I'm, I'm just trying to get to how you determine military essentiality, because that's, that's going to be in the eye of the beholder in a lot of cases. Because, you know, theoretically, every single person who draws a paycheck from the Department of Defense is supposed to be contributing to military lethality in some way or another. So h- how do you figure out whether whether somebody who is in uniform, who's currently performing some function, is or is not doing something that is militarily essential?
1: the, the department has, uh, you know, the department has uh, exhaustive policies and procedures that help, help decision makers identify what is and isn't military essential and what the nature of the work is and what the function is. So you're not looking at an individual soldier, sailor, airman, or marine and suggesting that they are or are an individual. You're looking at the work that they perform. And as we've seen the emergence, you know, the emergence of uh, new warfighting domains, such as cyber, uh, such as a remotely piloted aircraft, um, the, the the traditional uh, pr- the traditional definitions of trigger pullers, uh, war fighters in theater, and how we operate in the war fighting domains, uh, the application of Geneva War Conventions, and any number of other kind of considerations that would, in the past, have said. I absolutely need to have a uniform personnel doing this function, that has changed. Uh, cyber is a prime example of an area uh, where we believe uh, that we can uh, increasingly leverage the capabilities of civilians, um, the, maintain a currency with uh, skill sets necessary to provide for the nation's cyber defenses and cyber capabilities. Um, and, and and bring in talent, you know, bring in talent that in the past necessarily would not have found, been found eligible or be propensed uh, to serve, in uniform, uh, by looking at how they operate in the cyber domain and what those what the what we've called the belligerent nexus, uh, the, ne- the belligerent nexus is, and we've actually had a number of studies conducted by federally funded research development centers, uh, Institute for Defense Analysis, in particular, looking at how we staff cyber operations and how we staff uh, remotely piloted aircraft operations particularly transit in um, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance collection as opposed to you know the combat air patrols that are uh, on our armed uh, UAS platforms and so in many cases those are examples of where we can increasingly leverage a highly talented and capable civilian workforce without necessarily subjecting them to the additional duties that our military personnel have or the rotational requirements and then career progression requirements and maintain more currency in the skill sets.
0: And, and and how much of the drive to get military people out of functions they don't need to be performing is driven by cost? I, I, I know the You know, the fully burdened cost of contractors versus civilians is a somewhat controversial subject, but I think it's generally well understood that uniformed folks are your most expensive categories. Isn't that right?
1: Well, again, cost is a significant factor, and and there's been no shortage of studies uh, that would suggest one source versus the other source of labor is more or less cost-effective, and as you said, it is a controversial subject. Military personnel tend to be more costly when you look at it from a fully burdened, simply by virtue, not that we are overcompensating them or they're not getting the compensation and benefits that they deserve, because uh, I think no one would argue that that be the case. However, it's how we how we manage a career we go out when we need a civilian capability we hire the civilian when we need a contract support element we go out and we procure a contract but if we need military manpower at an 06 or an 05 level we have to have a career pyramid and you have to have a growth structure because we enlist and we we, uh, assess folks and enlist folks uh, early on in in their careers and we grow them uh, for the capabilities that we need so fully burdened yes military does tend to be uh, the more cost effect uh, the most costly source of labor however the argument here and, and the, the premise for workforce rationalization, while cost is certainly a driving factor, is really more about promoting readiness and, and, and le- readiness capability and lethality. Uh, the, the cost savings or the cost avoidance associated with making changes to your labor sources and how we deliver and meet mission is not going to large, is not going to result in uh, major decreases in the department's budget what it will do is result in the freeing up of funds that will be that can fund needed recapitalization uh, mitigate shortfalls in in other areas where we've uh, due to budget con- you know the last couple of years of budget control or sequestration where we've taken risk and allowed for some uh, uh, well-publicized um, and, and, and you know, the service chiefs have all spoken to some of the readiness shortfalls and facility sustainment shortfalls um, that the departments have uh, experienced. It will allow the reinvestment of those resources by making more more well-reasoned tradeoffs and thereby becoming better stewards of the American taxpayer dollars, not necessarily increasing, increasing the budget a lot um, year on and year in, but operating within the top line and and stretching the top line that we have been given by the Congress um, and becoming better stewards of of the taxpayers' resources.
0: I want to switch to uh, civilians and contractors and and, and how folks go about figuring out the right mix there. The traditional way, I think, of doing that has been through public-private competitions under OMB Circular Circular? Circular, A76. with the long-standing moratorium on those competitions in place, I think it's well over 10 years now, how do, how do you go about doing competitions like that? Do you need relief from that moratorium, or are there other ways to do this?
1: Yes. The the department um, and the workforce rationalization plans um does stipulate, and I think and it's laid out in the National Business Operations Plan as well, that one of the initiatives the Department will pursue is to seek legislative relief um, from the restrictions and the requirements to conduct A76 public-private competitions. Uh, the A76 public-private competition, as you pointed out, has essentially been under a moratorium for the last 10 years. It was a burdensome and ineffective process in many cases. Uh, what we would seek to, what the department is really interested in perhaps having is is a revised flexibility more akin to how we are able to, uh, the statutory authority we have to insource services, uh, which allows us to do a workforce analysis, and a workload analysis, and a business case analysis and make the best choices um, with respect to how we meet our missions without necessarily having to undergo a very time consuming and costly four year process of competing workload and in as has been well documented by numerous sources a uh, process that res- oftentimes doesn't result in necessarily the savings uh, that one would have anticipated from a from, from a fiscal perspective uh, so uh, we, we would like to uh, have more flexibility um, I think that's part of our broader strategy we we have in gotten there yet in terms of developing uh, concrete proposals, but certainly the National Defense Business Operation Plan notes that uh, both insourcing and outsourcing are viable tools that should be available, and rather than having a pendulum swing one way or the other, that we should have both flexibilities to best meet our missions uh, given the unique circumstances and the different circumstances that many of the uh, department's organizations face. We are a a large department with a vast mission, and uh, what's good in one organization What's right in one organization may be, dif- may be a different solution in another organization, given its unique missions.
0: So am I hearing you right that that it, it, it's unlikely that the department is just going to go to Congress and say, please get rid of the moratorium for us? It seems unlikely they're just going to do that. In, instead, it sounds like you're going to go to them with some kind of redesigned process for doing these competitions that is, as you said, less burdensome and, and allays some of the concerns that they've had in past years.
1: I, I think it's safe to say, given the, uh, the the Government Accountability's Office, the Department of Defense IG's office, uh, uh, and and congressional uh, congressional perspectives on the A seventy six process, as well as the perspectives of both uh, the Professional Services Council and 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 the uh, National Labor Unions, with respect to uh, the viability and efficacy of the A76 process, that the department would be better suited to pursue a uh, legislative relief strategy that afforded it a less burdensome and more effective process. Simply going to Congress and saying, lift the A76 moratorium would likely not be an effective uh, strategy because the challenges uh, with A76 that Congress has uh, identified, uh, both to the Office of Management and Budget, to the Department and elsewhere, have not been addressed. Um, The OMB circular A76, which was faulted as being ineffective uh, by many, uh, OMB for you know, because of the moratorium hasn't focused and and because of prior administration uh, focus areas, it hasn't revised that process. So, simply lifting the process and going back to business as usual would not be an efficient use of resources or get at the effective uh, alignment of workload. So, I think it's safe to say that uh, as part of our workforce rationalization and national defense business operations plan, the pursuing a legislative strategy that will allow us increased flexibility to make well-reasoned choices is, is the d- direction the department intends to head in future legislative
2: cycles.
0: Thomas Hessel is the Defense Department's Deputy Director for Total Force Manpower and Resources. He's back with us for another few minutes after another quick break. This is On DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Surbill. Back on federalnewsradio.com in 1500 a.m. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we finish our conversation with Thomas Hessel, the Defense Department's Deputy Director for Total Force Manpower and Resources. We're talking about a new strategy laid out in the National Defense Business Operations Plan, giving local defense leaders more leeway to design their personnel structures with what they think is an optimal mix of civilians, contractors, and military personnel. I know it's hard to make blanket statements about any of this cuz all all of this all of these topics are so case specific and so command specific. But but the document explicitly calls out the need to avoid what you call more costly contractor workarounds. And I'm I'm just wondering if you could expand on what you have in mind there. Are are, are there some examples you can think of where a contractor workforce might be more expensive than than government employees?
1: The example you bring out is actually uh, referenced in the context of not only more costly contractor uh, solutions, but also uh, with respect to leveraging military manpower uh, in a borrowed force uh, or using borrowed military manpower, which leads to a hollow force. Mm -hmm. Uh, Contextually, that remark, uh, that statement is made in the context that when one has an arbitrary or artificial constraint that precludes a well-reasoned assessment based on workload and a business case analysis, often we get suboptimal solutions. It wasn't intended to to assume that contractor uh, labor is always more costly or is a more costly source, but it was intended to say when when a decision maker is not given uh, and does not have the flexibility or the freedom to choose among all available labor sources and is only given two out of three labor sources that the increased likelihood of a suboptimal outcome, either leveraging military manpower where it's inappropriate, uh, thereby harming readiness and increasing the likelihood of a hollow force, or perhaps choosing a more costly contractor solution. Of course, that contract solution that may have been that may have been the option, may very well be a cost-effective solution, but absent a well-reasoned business case analysis and a comprehensive workload, work, workload analysis, we're simply choosing a, uh, a solution rather than uh, selecting one based on analysis.
0: I want to talk a bit about civilian hiring, which is also talked about in, in the plan here. Um, the, the message seems to be let's use the authorities Congress has already given us. So so which authorities are, are looking most attractive at the moment? And are, are there particular functional communities you're gonna focus those on?
1: So uh, that's um, largely outside of my area. That's mostly in our civilian personnel policy. The department has a large number of uh, direct hiring and expedited hiring authorities that uh, we've worked with the Congress over, over the years to ensure that we have to get our most critical skill sets or to get uh, to fix Um, shortfalls uh, where we need. But in terms of the specifics with respect to those authorities or communities, I I don't have that kind of insight at
0: this point. That's fair enough. Um, Let's go back to something that's definitely in your wheelhouse, though, which is the overall workforce mix. You've said over and over again here that these decisions are going to be made at a local level. I'm just wondering how useful it is or how useful it would be if you had better fidelity on, 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 on data at an enterprise level to figure out exactly what your workforce looks like. Really, my question is, what kind of fidelity do you have now and how much more do you need?
1: So um, data fidelity and the ability to understand and articulate the size and composition of the department's workforces, military, civilian and contract support is absolutely critical uh, to, to making uh, those uh, to making assessments to understanding uh, there's a number of initiatives uh, underway in the department to continuously improve the availability of data uh, not only personnel data which is uh, fairly well understood uh, through um, civilian personnel systems but also requirements data uh, the manpower data understanding what is the work of the department um, not not necessarily not only what are the skill sets necessary to su- successfully execute that work but what is truly the mission and how much of the resources and authorizations are we allocating against particular mission sets and how we characterize that how we capture that uh, across the total force of military civilian and contract support is is absolutely critical um, to the to the long term uh, efficacy of uh, workforce rationalization, and and there's a number of initiatives underway uh, throughout the department uh, related to that, uh, including uh, those tied to uh, cyber workforce and and quantifying the cyber workforce based on uh, statutory and executive order mandates. Uh, Security cooperation, obviously, is is one that the... a workforce that the Congress has zeroed in on in recent years, uh, as well as um, we've seen also many years of now uh, reform and, and efforts to kind of better articulate the size of the acquisition workforce and the financial management workforce.
0: Considering how much of the the actual decision making about the right workforce mix is going to be done at a, at a lower organizational level what what would that enterprise level data be used for is it mostly a budgeting tool or what 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 good does it do you up at your level
1: well i think the, the the that what that data allows us to do is to better articulate the size and composition of the overall department's workforce and to better articulate the alignment of the workforce against those critical readiness and lethality needs so that we don't misrepresent the notion that um dod uh defense agencies or defense uh, defense agencies and field activities the so-called fourth estate is uh, purely a bureaucratic or administrative entity uh again all of the od components have a headquarter component or element to them but our defense agencies and field activities the the so-called fourth estate uh much of it provides critical our combat support agencies and provides critical capabilities that are necessary for the efficacy of the warfighter so having better granularity better data and better methodologies for articulating how our overall uh Work the overall force and and resource uh, labor resources of the department are allocated and structured against mission attainment is is critical to help with the overall communications of how these entities and how these workforces contribute to achieving uh, the national defense strategy objectives of Secretary Mattis and and the President
0: Thomas Hessel is the Defense Department's Deputy Director for Total Force Manpower and Resources. He joined us to talk about some of the key workforce elements in the National Defense Business Operations Plan. If you'd like to take a look at that plan, we'll link to it at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. We'll stick with personnel matters when we come back from one last break. Robert Wilkie, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, joins us for a few minutes. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And as I said before the break, we're going to stick with defense personnel policy for the balance of this week's show. Robert Wilkie's name has been in the news most often lately because of his role as the acting Secretary of Veterans Affairs, and he, of course, is also the president's nominee to be the permanent secretary. But his current Senate-confirmed role is as the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. He says he spent a significant chunk of his time in that role trying to implement military and family support programs Congress has already enacted, in some cases years ago. He talked about some of that work with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Scott Massioni.
2: I made a commitment to Secretary Mattis when I was sworn in that I would make sure that the department, at least on the PNR side, was in line with directives uh, for us in various NDAAs, and I was shocked that uh, there were so many major programs um directed by Senator McCain and Chairman Thornberry and then the, the chairman who pre- preceded them that had gone, um, had, been un- had not been worked. And I went all the way back to the FY10 NDAA and found the, uh, the major program in that legislation that had gone by the wayside was exceptional family member. Uh, That struck a chord with me because I was one of those children uh, back in the 1960s. My father was a young officer, and uh, Walter Reed gave me about five years to live. And um, there was no program at the time for uh, military children with my condition. In my, my case, it was a heart issue. And uh, my parents, though, uh, with a pretty strong educational background and ties into many Army communities, were able to cobble together uh, a program of medical treatment and housing that eventually uh, got me better. Uh, But they had to jump through a lot of hoops. Um, One of the Resources that they used was one of my father's fellow field artillerymen who had uh, decided to leave the field artillery and go into Army medicine, and he was working at Walter Reed, and he ensured that even though my father was just a captain, that we always had a home on Army posts that had central air conditioning uh, to help my lungs because in those days, unless you were a senior officer, the chances of you having central air conditioning were pretty slim. So if you looked at something like the old post quadrangle at Fort Sill, you'd see colonel, 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 and then captain, Uh, and that was us. So that uh, program uh, struck a chord. So I, I went to Senator McCain and said that we are going to implement this Uh, There are about 135,000 military families with children and young adults uh, with special needs, and we're going to set up a a program to allow them to have access to resources to to take care of their families. And the way Secretary Mattis views it, it is not strictly um, a health issue or family well-being issue, but it is one of readiness and retention. Um, In my dad's day, less than 8% of, 8 or 9% of the the troops had had families. Today it's over 70%. Uh, If the family's not happy, the warrior walks. And we do have a duty to these volunteers to take take care of, of them and take care of their children. And, and that was the uh, that was the impetus behind uh, the move, both personal on my my part, but professional on my part as well as the part of the Secretary of Defense.
0: Right. Now, um, tr- navigating insurance and Tricare and all those types of things is, uh, you know, a real pain in the neck for a lot of people. How can these programs uh, bring together? certain resources with the the service members is this counseling is it um, you know phone calls how does that work
2: so uh, you actually hit on the crux crux of the issue what we have done is establish installation support services uh, across DOD uh, 24-hour availability for hotlines the ability of our families to have immediate contact with a TRICARE representative, the ability of our families to talk to a, a military service professional, and that professional can point those families in the right direction when it comes to medical care, uh, when it comes to schools. Um, our Dodia schools are now, now have the training uh, to assist families with children with special needs. Uh, Going back to my own experience um, moving to Fort Bragg as a youngster, um, we were lucky enough to find someone who could help us get me into Duke University, uh, one of the world's great hospitals. Uh, Our families don't have to jump through those hoops anymore. They don't have to rely on luck or connections with someone else in the service. They can call the installation support. Uh, installation support can get them on the phone uh, with people who can help them. Installation support can get those appointments um, and, and get those get those children on the road to proper care.
0: And when it comes to the aperture of this, I mean, uh, Autism has been a big issue for um, the the past couple of years. Is this something that that deals purely with physical health, or does it go into the mental health range as well?
2: You're absolutely right. This this covers the gamut. Physical health, autism, which is still one of the great unknowns when it comes to the way we treat uh, our young people in this country. Um, Autism care in the military has been changing rapidly. Uh, We've put in pilot programs at places like Madigan uh, Army Medical Center at Fort Lewis. Uh, We've done it at Fort Hood and Fort Bliss. We're we're setting up care centers that deal with that particular issue. But uh, with our exceptional family member program, um, the counselors and the support staff are trained to point our people in the right direction when it comes to autistic care. And the other side of this, and and I mentioned in my my own youth um, the transfer of my father from someplace like Fort Sill to Fort Bragg, what this does is it works with the services so that when you have a permanent change of station on a warrior's timetable, that we will do our best to make sure that that permanent change of station will occur when we f- when we determine that there is sufficient care at the other end of the change um, for that uh, for that service member's family. For instance, if you have a, a child with with autism and the services at Fort Bragg are great because you, you not only have access to an Army Medical Center, you can go up the road to Duke or Chapel Hill. We want to make sure when it comes time to transfer um, that if there's a transfer to, say, the D.C. area, we know that those same services are available to that family. It works in most cases. Um And I think that is a change, too, because it's also, um, in this day and age, an an issue of retention as well.
0: That's Robert Wilkie, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, talking with my colleague Scott Massioni. Earlier in the hour, we heard from Thomas Hessel, the Defense Department's Deputy Director for Total Force Manpower and Resources, about what DOD calls a significant shift in its approach to the civilian workforce and the total force. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's entire show, as always, at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. You can also listen by signing up for our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it. For this week's show. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. and federalnewsradio.com.